know, the older that I get, now 45, it seems like with every passing day and certainly with every passing year, I realize more and more that life is truly a gift. Every day is a gift. Every breath is a gift. Every heartbeat is a gift. Matter of fact, today, right now, in this very moment, it's a gift. And we should all just sit under the weight of that for just a moment and just thank God for the gift of this moment, this breath, this heartbeat, this moment in time to thank him for the gift of life because it is exactly that, it is a gift. We should always find ourselves thinking about how precious life is and how fragile life is and how fleeting life is to the point that it reminds us that today and every day, it's a special occasion. Life is a gift that we should never take for granted. Life is a gift that we should never waste or squander. So whether you're a teenager or in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, 60s or 70s, 80s and beyond, today you're enjoying a gift. When it comes to life and it comes to the gift of life, one of the reasons why it's a gift is because life carries with it the opportunity and the potential for adventure, for connection, for discovery, for growth, for love, for meaning and purpose. It means that every day, every moment, every heartbeat is, is an invitation from God himself, the author of life, that every moment is an invitation to live. And too many of us, we're okay with settling for merely existing rather than actually living. Unfortunately, we allow life to get in the way of us living life. We get so distracted and so busy and so overwhelmed and sometimes so self-centered and so discouraged and so bitter and so superficial that we stop appreciating, we stop celebrating and we stop living Life. Life can do that. Life can get in the way of you and I actually living life. Life can get in the way of us actually appreciating the gift of life. Life's full spectrum. You know this, you've experienced this. It's beautiful, it's intense, at times it's brutal. There's struggle, there's strife. There's pleasure and pain, there's sickness and health, there's gains and losses, there's delight and disappointment, there's victories and defeats, ecstasy and heartbreak, good times and tough times, delivery rooms and cemeteries, love stories and tragedies. Life's full of a variety of experiences and events and encounters, but it's how we face them. It's how we see them. It's how we interpret the moments of life that make all the difference in the world. No matter where those events fall on the spectrum of life, 
It's our perspective that makes all the difference. For the past few weeks, we've been talking about how to make this season wonderful. And today I I wanted to do it a little bit different. I just wanted us to just sit for a moment and just allow our hearts to be gripped, perhaps by grace, to allow our minds to be captured, perhaps by wonder, so that faith would rise up and that our perspective about our lives would be somehow changed or tweaked or refined or honed. Perspective is all about how we see things. It's about how we interpret things. It's, it's our point of reference. It's, it's our vantage point. It's how we see the events and the moments of our lives It's how we see things in such a way that it shapes our values, our views, our conclusions, our assumptions, our beliefs, our thoughts, our emotional state, and even our actions. It's our perspective that ultimately impacts the quality and the direction of our life, no matter what the circumstances of our life may be. And today I wanna wrap up this series by talking about a perspective that I hope you're able to embrace and I hope that I'm able to embrace in all the moments, in all the season, in all the events of my life and yours. And it's a perspective of hope. We've talked about if you wanna make this season truly wonderful, then be grateful. We've talked about being faithful, full of faith, full of trust. We've talked about peacefulness, peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. Last week, we talked about being joyful, good news of great joy for all the people. The good news that God's capacity to forgive sin is always greater than my capacity to sin. And today, I wanna talk about being hopeful. A hopeful perspective is a way of seeing life, of interpreting life. And hope is what shapes how we think and feel and live about the moments of our life. Hope is what brings passion and energy to life. It's what inspires us to act. It's it's what gives us the courage to keep moving forward when it's not easy to move forward. And I know that for some of you, you're facing things right now in life, you're dealing with things in life and it's not easy to keep moving forward, but hope is that thing that keeps us moving forward when it's not easy to move forward. Hope is the ability to see light on the other side of darkness. It's the ability to see order on the other side of chaos. It's the vision to know that there's life even on the other side of death. Hope is the confident expectation that better days are yet to come. This may be my favorite. Hope is standing even in the midst of defeat, but not feeling defeated because you know the story's not over. It's what keeps us moving forward. It's what keeps us standing. It's the prevailing belief that whatever the future holds, it's gonna be good and it's gonna be worthwhile. 
that whatever your future has in front of it, it's good and it's worthwhile. Hope is what gives us the confidence that we can get there from here. That's what hope is. And none of us can ever truly appreciate and live out this gift called life without hope. And if there's anything that the world needs right now, it's hope. Every single day in my life, I I get called into drama. I get called into people's worst case scenarios. When the worst news that they could ever dream of has knocked on their door, part of what I do and part of how I get to serve is to be with people in those dark, difficult, desperate moments. And I can tell you because every week of my life, I'm reminded that some people are just one crisis away from ruin, one blow up away from collapse, one calamity away from a meltdown, one setback away from destruction. Hope is what we all need. Hope is what we all crave. And when you talk about hope, you have to always talk about Christmas because the theme of Christmas is a lingering, persevering hope. And that's what I love about the Christmas story. The Christmas story doesn't varnish over the rough realities of life with a thick coat of empty cliches doesn't gloss over the harshness of life or the dark side of life. Matter of fact, the dark side of life is embedded throughout the story of Christmas. And just not the story of Christmas, but the grander story of Christmas, the backstory of Christmas. And so as we all get ready to head into Christmas week, that's, that's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to tell you the story, the story of Christmas story of a lingering, persevering hope that kept a people moving forward when it wasn't easy to move forward, that allowed people to stand in the very midst of defeat without feeling defeated, a hope that allowed a group of people like you to see light beyond the darkness and order beyond the chaos and life even beyond the death that was all around them. This story doesn't begin in Bethlehem and it doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph and angels and shepherds and wise men. It doesn't begin in a manger, but this story begins at the very beginning. It begins in a garden. That's where the story of Christmas begins. Within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the story of the uncreated creator God that brought creation into existence, that brought order to the chaos of the cosmos, that brought everything that exists into existence along with all the mathematical laws of chemistry and physics that are attached to reality itself. A story of how God, who is the ultimate reality, became the architect of all reality that we call time, space, and matter. A story of how God created human beings like you and me. And he placed upon men and women, boys and girls, his image. How God created man and placed him in the garden and his first words to humanity was, you are free 
because God had designed you and God had designed me and God had designed all of us with free will, the choice to decide the direction of our lives for ourselves. Why would God trust us with such a burden, with such a privilege, with such an opportunity and responsibility because God from the very beginning wanted you and I to love him. And love required that you have a choice, that I have a choice. Love that is forced is not love at all. For love to exist, there has to be the choice to choose against love as much as there is the choice to choose for love. Before a relationship can ever truly be a relationship, there has to be the freedom to embrace the relationship or to be able to walk away. And God created humanity with freedom because he wanted us to choose to love him. And whenever there is a choice for love, there's also the possibility for the choice of evil. And in a world of free choice, sometimes God doesn't get everything that he wants. God told his creation, it's your choice, but know that with your choice comes consequences. You choose my way, it leads to life. You choose your way, it leads to death. God said, you're free to eat of the entire garden, every tree in the garden. And imagine how beautiful it was. Imagine how enticing it was, how attractive. And he said, it's all yours. And you're free to eat of any tree that you want for as long as you want. But there's one tree that you must stay away from, one tree that you cannot eat from. In Genesis, we're told that our first parents, Adam and Eve, when faced with the choice of life and death, they chose to distrust God. They chose to doubt his goodness. And like so many of us, they thought they knew better, that they knew better than their creator. They knew better than their designer. They knew better than their God and their king, and they chose their own way over God's way. They decided to take upon themselves the right to define good and evil on their own terms. They chose to be sovereigns over their own lives. They decided that they would take the reins of absolute authority and that they would unilaterally rule over their own lives and their own kingdoms. But just as God had warned them, that choice came with consequences, that rebellion, that treason against their God, against their creator, against their king. We're told that in that moment, it opened the door for what all of history would record as sin, sorrow, and death. Every painful thing in this life, every disappointment, every injustice, all oppression, all discrimination, all conflict, all war, all division, all disease, all tragedy entered the world in that moment. And Genesis, from the very beginning, helped to answer the question, what is wrong with our world? And Genesis' answer to that question is sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Why is all, there, all the pain and disease and injustice and tragedy, where does that come from? Why does it exist? Why does God allow it to happen? 
And Genesis tells us, this is the way that we chose. This is the path that we set out on. And it's just like us to choose our own way and then blame God for the consequences. After Adam and Eve rebelled and committed treason against God, we're told that they hid themselves. Assuming the worst about God and assuming that God would wanna get even, they hid themselves. But God did the most unexpected thing. God met them in their mess because that's where God loves to meet us. He clothed the nakedness that they were now ashamed of. And in that moment, he gave them the most unexpected thing. He gave them a promise. He told them in the moment of their disgrace, in the moment of their rebellion, that one day he would send a savior, a king, a hero, a deliverer who would undo all the sin, sorrow, and death that had entered into the world. So our first parents left the Garden of Eden with the clothes on their back and a promise, a promise that believed better days were still to come. A promise that led them to believe that somehow against all hope, the best was yet to come. And our first parents left the Garden of Eden with the greatest gift that they could have left with, the gift of hope, a perspective of how they would look at the past and the present and the future, a hope that would make sense of all the pain and all the injustice and all the darkness and all the chaos from that moment on, the biblical story is that we rebelled. God created us, but we rebelled. And then we ran away. But God has decided to come after us. Not to pay us back, but to win us back. And the rest of the scripture from Genesis to the very end of Revelation is the story of God doing whatever it takes to win his family back. Fast forward 2,000 years later in the year 2091 BC, a man by the name of Abraham is minding his own business in the land of Ur. And God speaks to Abraham and gives him a promise. Abraham, if you'll leave your home, if you'll leave your extended family and go to a land that one day I will show you, I will make your name great. I will make you the father of a family and the father of a great nation. And one day that great nation will become a kingdom. And out of that kingdom, one day there will come a king, a savior who will bless all the nations of the world. But at 75, without any children and his wife, Sarah, great in age without children against all odds and against hope. They trusted in the promise of God and out of that promise came hope that better days were yet ahead, that the best days were yet ahead. And what looked and felt and sounded and seemed impossible by faith became possible. And they lived the rest of their life waiting for the God who made the promise 
to keep the promise. And that's what hope does. It's a present confidence in a future reality that's not yet reality, that one day will be reality, that changes how we face our present reality. And Abraham passed the promise on to Isaac, who passed the promise on to Jacob, who would pass the promise on to his 12 sons, who would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, who would pass that promise on and on and on. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac, at the end of the book of Genesis, moves with his sons and 70 of his family and they move to Egypt. And what started wonderful soon turned terrible because that's exactly what we would expect in life. Smooth sailing is often interrupted by storms and the wind that is pleasant and refreshing can on a moment turn and become harsh and destructive. All of a sudden, Pharaoh who looked kindly upon Jacob and his people passed away and a new Pharaoh looked at Jacob's descendants, which had been increasing generation after generation. And now he saw them as a threat. And now the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become slaves to Egyptian rulers and would become an enslaved people for the next 400 years. During that time as slaves, the only freedom they had was the choice to believe or not believe that God would one day keep that promise that they had been told about since the time they were born. A promise that God had made to their first parents in the garden. A promise that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and now a promise that he was entrusting to them that they would become custodians of in their generation. They had the freedom, even as slaves, to choose whether or not they would be a people of hope who would live even as slaves with a perspective of hope. So some of them, not all of them, a few of them chose to believe that even the pain of their present somehow would one day give way to a purpose, a greater purpose in their future. Somehow, even as slaves, they chose to believe that better days were yet to come and that the best was yet to come. And even though they'd lived every day powerless as slaves, some of them decided by faith that they would never live a single moment hopeless as the people of God. So they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And after 400 years of praying in 1446 BC, God decided to answer their prayer. And he raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and Moses, delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery into a freedom that they had only dreamed about for generations. And it seemed as though God was on the precipice of keeping all of his promises. They left Egypt and they went to Sinai and God gave them his law to teach these people who had been slaves how to live as free people of God. But blessings soon became burdens and blessings soon became distractions. 
And faith gave way to disbelief and they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses would pass away and hand off the reins of leadership to the generation of Joshua and Caleb. After a generation of faithless men and women, hopeless men and women had passed off the scene of history and a new generation crossed the Jordan went into the land of promise and settled into the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of a sudden they were living in houses they didn't build and they were drinking from fountains they didn't dig. But gratitude became a passing thought. And all of a sudden they lived with entitlement, thinking, look what we've done. Look at what we've earned. Look at this life we've built. 20 or so years after they go into the land of promise, Joshua passes away. Over the next few years, the contemporaries of Joshua, they too pass away. And we're told at the end of the book of Joshua that a new generation emerged. And this generation did not know the Lord. They abandoned faith. They walked away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a thick canopy of darkness descended on the land, the likes of which they'd never experienced before. And for the next 300 years, it would be known as the time of the judges, when there was no king in the land of Israel. And every man and every woman did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time when right became wrong and wrong became right. And everything was turned upside down. A time of dark chaos, moral anarchy, violence and pestilence and conflict. A time so dismal that at first glance, things seemed to be hopeless. But even in the chaos and the darkness, there was always a group of people who decided to walk by faith, to believe that God had made a promise that one day God would surely keep. And even in the darkness and the chaos of those days, as the book of Judges played out with all of its upside down sin, in a little corner of Israel, in a little town called Bethlehem, a love story is playing out. A Moabite girl by the name of Ruth on public welfare falls in love with a wealthy Jewish landowner by the name of Boaz. And in the midst of the darkness, there is a glimmer of light. In the midst of the death, there is the pulse of life. And in that budding love story, a marriage. And out of that marriage, Ruth and Boaz will become the great grandparents of the most beloved king in all of Israel's history, King David. David, who's king of Israel, crowned in the year 1010 BC. God keeping his promise that this family that would become a nation that would become now a kingdom. And God, who made a promise to his people, would now make a promise to David. And 
God would make a promise to David, who was a man after God's own heart, but a man of great struggle, a man who knew great success, but a man who also knew great failure, a man who somehow thrived as a king, but failed as a husband and a father. But in grace, God extended to David a promise, a promise of a dynasty, a promise that one day one of his sons would rule over a kingdom that would never end, sit upon a throne that would never be toppled. After David would sleep with his fathers, Solomon would take over and usher Israel to the golden era. And as the queen of Sheba would say, the half had never been told about the glories of Solomon and his kingdom, but Solomon would not be that son. Rehoboam, the grandson of David, whose stubbornness would cause civil war and break the kingdom and fracture it into north and south, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Rehoboam would not be that son. For the next 300 years, God would send prophets, major and minor alike, to call the people of God back to God. In the north, they consistently rebelled and God kept calling them back, calling them back and calling them back out of darkness, out of death. And when they refused, time and time again, God allowed the consequences of their choices to knock at their door. In 722 BC, the Assyrians stormed the kingdom of Israel to the north and destroyed them forever. In the south, God extended mercy, God extended grace. Sometimes they would repent and return only to rebel and run away again. And finally, God in 586 allowed the southern kingdom to experience the consequences of their choices as the Babylonians would come in and destroy the walls, destroy the city, kill thousands of lives. Jeremiah the prophet would be one of those left behind in the smoke and the ruins of a destroyed Jerusalem. And as he lamented over their present reality, he says, peace has been stripped away and I have forgotten what prosperity is. He says, I cried out, my splendor is gone. Everything I hoped for is lost. But in the same breath, there was just enough faith for Jeremiah to say in Lamentations 3, verse 17, yet I still dare to hope. Especially when I remember that the faithful love of the Lord, it never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. The one who was faithful to make the promise will be the one who will be faithful to keep the promise. Jeremiah said, hope is all I have. And it was hope that kept the nation moving forward. Thousands were taken to exile, but God promised them against all hope, against all odds, one day I'm bringing you back because I made a promise. And when I make a promise, when I speak it, all time, all space, all matter 
All the laws of chemistry and physics begin to coalesce around the words of the Almighty and begin to bring about the reality that he has spoken into existence. Every spoken promise of God is a new act of creation, creating a new reality that God has spoken out of the older realities. A new reality that redefines the previous realities, that gives us a perspective to move forward, to know that we can get there from here. The nation in exile, far away from their city, from their temple. God sent the prophet Isaiah to say, this stump, this dead dry stump that you say severed and laid to the ground, this house of David, this dynasty of David, which has been cut down, laid low, it seems like death, Rains. It seems as though this stump's future is hopeless. Oh, it will bloom again. Ezekiel said, oh, people of God, look at that valley of dead dry bones. Can they live again? I don't know, God, those, those bones are dead and they're dry. And it looks like all hope is gone. It looks like these dead, dry bones will never live again. It seems as though from the perspective of this valley that the best days are gone. That the best days are past. But Ezekiel says, when God decides to speak, his words to those dead dry bones, those bones begin to move and tendons and ligaments and muscles begin to draw those bones back together and flesh begins to cover those bones and all of a sudden that ringing and that clamoring of bones that you hear all of a sudden now begins to stand in life as an army that begins to move forward, believing that the best days are yet ahead. And the Old Testament ends with a group of people struggling to hold on to hope, a lingering, persevering hope, a hope that said better days are to come. Israel came back home and the Babylonians were replaced by the Persians who were replaced by the Greeks, who were replaced by the Romans. And after 400 years of dark silence, the silence was interrupted on the dark, cold hills of Judea with the cry of a baby. And the news proclaimed by the angels, good news of great joy for all the people for this day in the city of David, a savior has been born 
who is Christ the Lord. Tonight in the city of David, God has kept his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the tribe of Judah, to the line of Jesse, to the house of David. A king has been born who will rule over the house of David forever. This king who will lay down his life for his subjects, who will give his life a sacrifice of sin on a Roman cross, who will wear a monarch's crown, but not of gold, but of thorns. A king who would be removed from a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb that belonged to a rich man. But just as the prophet Isaiah had whispered 700 years before in the 53rd chapter of his book, when he says that after the appointed time, he will be raised to see the light of life. And on the hills of his resurrection from the dead, a hope would be offered to the world that the hope, a hope that the world would never fully be able to comprehend how wonderful, how glorious and how blessed. But the good news that became the movement of the church and Jesus followers was that the empty tomb, the empty tomb is God's promise that the best is yet to come. Jesus ascended back into heaven. And on the third day, or on the end of his ascension back into heaven, two men in white apparel appeared to his followers and said, why do you stand here looking up into the heavens? This same Jesus, which was taken away, will come again in like manner. And this is what the New Testament calls our blessed hope. Hope, knowing that he came the first time, is our hope and confidence that he will come the second time. I close it with this, to write it in the words of the scripture. This is our hope. One day, at the appointed day, the skies will open up and as lightning flashes from the east to the west, the skies will open up and the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. He who will descend is the one who is called faithful and true. He will have a name written down his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In that moment, the angel of the Lord will place one foot on the land and the other on the sea, declaring that time shall be no more. The graves will burst open and the land and the sea will give up their dead. And on that day, the mortal shall put on immortality and the perishable shall put on the imperishable. As it is written, death will be swallowed up in victory and the resurrected will sing and taunt, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is 
your victory. They will be raised in resurrected bodies. We will be raised in resurrected bodies to die no more. Jesus' feet will sit down on the Mount of Olives. He will walk across the Kidron Valley. He will walk through the Eastern Gate. He will climb the steps of the Temple Mount and sit down on the throne of his father, David. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And of his rule and peace, there will be no end. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our great God, Savior, and King. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will become the banners for the people. The nations will rally to him. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The lamb will lay down with the wolf and the children will play with the cobra and they will not be bitten. Men will beat their plowshares, their swords into plowshares and study war no more. Everything destroyed will be rebuilt. The salt water will turn fresh. The deserts will bloom again and the plowman will overtake the reapers as the Lord restores to all of us the years that the locusts have eaten. Heaven and earth will be remade and we will live on a new earth without tears, heartache, without disease, no reports of cancer, no diabetes, no chronic illness, a world without death. For the former order of things have passed away. All of death's victories will be undone. The heartbreak, the grief, the sorrow will be undone. This is God's promise. This is what our future looks like. As C.S. Lewis said, we love today. We love this life and we love this world and we should because it's a mere shadow of the new world to come. Every precious, glorious moment in this life is just a whisper of the glory and the splendor of the new world to come. Every embrace, every act of love, every smile, every laughter, every dinner, every adventure is but a whisper of the world that he's preparing for us. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Wrong Will Be Made Right When Aslan Comes in Sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And on that day, Chapter one of our greatest story, the great story which no man on earth has ever written or read will begin and never end, where every chapter is better than the one before. There is a place called heaven where the good here unfinished is completed. and where the stories unwritten and the hopes unfulfilled are continued. We will laugh together yet again. And for all the people of faith of every generation, we will be reunited again.
those that we've said goodbye to, those that we've buried, the empty chairs at our Christmases this year. One day in the new world to come, those unfinished stories will be completed and we will live forever in a kingdom of joy and peace with no need of hope for in that day our hope has become sight our hope is not a season it's not an event it's a person his name is Jesus and an empty tomb is God's promise to us that the best is yet to come Heavenly Father God thank you for a story of lingering persevering hope a God who makes promises a God who keeps promises who offers us hope that sees light beyond darkness beauty beyond ashes life beyond death a hope that is living and true a hope that is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven a hope that reminds us that no matter what we're facing no matter what season of life we're currently in we are never without hope remind us of that as we sing about it together in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing about this hope